Well, we have sung about our call to battle and the great captain of our salvation who leads us. And I'm going to read the war cry of the army in Numbers chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. Hear God's word. So they departed from the mountain of Jehovah on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of Jehovah went before them for the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. <clears throat> and the cloud of Jehovah was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Jehovah, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Jehovah, to the many thousands of Israel. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we dig into the book of Numbers, I pray that you would sanctify us through your truth. May all uh, strongholds, all high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of you be cast down at the power of your grace and your scriptures. We love you, and we want to become more like you. And so we commit ourselves to continued worship and submission. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in this series of uh, sermons through every book of the Bible, uh, we have seen that Genesis is the book that deals with beginnings. Uh, Exodus was the book of redemption, where God's people were redeemed out of slavery. After redemption comes sanctification. So we saw that Leviticus uh, was the book where God works on his people to teach them to worship, to teach them to serve him in holiness. And then Numbers is preparing God's people to be a powerful fighting army ready to invade the land of Canaan. And then Deuteronomy uh, then gives the blueprints for life once they get into that land. And so you can see there is a logical ordering in these first five books of the Bible. Now you can think of the book of Numbers as describing God's basic training for his army, kind of like a boot camp. Uh, Christianity is not just about getting saved. That would be the book of Exodus. It's not just about getting holy personally. That would be the book of Leviticus. It is about training, warfare, discipline, godliness, lear learning how to work together as a cohesive unit. And believe me, Israel was anything but a cohesive unit when they started out. There was complaining, there was bickering, uh, there was nonstop division. Now, what I want to point out is you can expect this to happen. There's no surprises. Every boot camp starts off with people being disorderly, and they have to be brought from a disorderly, undisciplined state into a state of discipline. There's no surprises there whatsoever. And, uh, uh, and the Navy SEALs' extra-long training uh, program, it tends to weed out the majority of those who have applied uh, to be a part of this prestigious uh, group. Uh, I read this past week that there's about a thousand applicants a year, and of those thousand applicants, only 200 to 250 actually make it uh, into, uh, the, uh, in, into the military there. Well, uh, we see something very similar in Israel. There was a weeding out process. In fact, within a year, most of the first generation had disqualified themselves. Now, it's not as if God completely disbanded them. He still had work for them to do. He continued, but they did not, were not allowed to enter into the prestigious role of taking the conquest of Canaan. And... Um, 
the um, Lord used that first generation, disqualified as they were for one task, to accomplish other things, including battles and testing and training uh, the second generation of Israelites. And by the time we get to the end of 40 years, which is about what the book of Numbers covers, 38 plus years, uh, what we have is a well-disciplined, well-oiled machine that conquered the land of Canaan in a remarkably short period of time. In fact, it was probably the most disciplined, the most faithful generation of warriors in Israel's entire history, with David's army probably being a close second. Uh, God was very successful in this boot camp in developing exactly what he wanted uh, to develop. But not everybody could hack it. Uh, in fact, if you count the uh, census at the end of this book, chapter 26, and you compare it to the census at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, you will see by the end of 40 years there was actually a net loss of 1,820 soldiers, despite a high birth rate. That's a big loss over a period of 40 years. Not everybody could hack it. Now, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, gives the theme of Numbers. It looks back on this 40-year period that Numbers covers, and it says this, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness in order to... So here comes the purposes for this book of Numbers. Here comes the purposes for those 40 years. He led them there for 40 years in order to... He says, first of all, to humble you. That's an important part of boot camp. In order to test you, that's another important part of boot camp, to know what was in your heart. Oh yeah, boot camp will expose the bad attitudes that are in your heart real, real quickly. And then he says whether you would keep his commandments or not. So learning to submit to leadership was a big part of what was going on in that boot camp. Uh, this was a time of testing. Now, there's a lot of debate on what the theme word for numbers might be. If you look at the various study Bibles and uh, different studies out there, uh, everybody's taking their guesses as to what the uh, key word is. Some people say it's wanderings, but I'll tell you what, the word wanderings only occurs one time in the book of of uh, numbers. Now there was wanderings, it was actually marchings, but it was not aimless wandering. By the time we get to the end of this service, uh, you're going to see that God had a purpose for every journey he took them on. It was very pointed, very purposeful marching. Um, others say that the key word is testings, and I would agree that Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 gives testing as one of four purposes that God gave uh, in there, but the that word only occurs one time in the book of Numbers. There was testing going on. We're going to look at those testings, but it doesn't comprehensively cover as a key word everything's going on in this book. The word march only occurs one time, even though there was a lot of marching that happened. Wilderness occurs 44 times. Some people say that's the key word. Um, and it's true, wilderness is an important word. That was the context, at least for the central section of this book, as to where the boot camp took place, but uh, wilderness itself uh, was not, um, uh, does not capture the whole word. We're looking for a word that is constantly used in this book, and I think sums up the entire message of this book, and I think that the word is camp. The Hebrew word for camp occurs 123 times in the book of Numbers and speaks of God's organizing of the people 
and he's preparing them for something at Mount Sinai, that's the first section, in the wilderness, that's the second section, and the plains of Moab, where he's testing them with uh, some uh, skirmishes and some, uh, some battles. And so this is a book about a training camp, a boot camp. By the time they enter into the land of Canaan, they have finally become a united, disciplined, obedient army that takes over the land of Canaan remarkably quickly. Now you might wonder, why should we even bother to study this book? Well, the concept of boot camp is important for all four governments that God has established. Self-government, family government, church government, and civics. And I'm going to be applying it to all four governments. When our kids acted up, uh, we took them through a literal boot camp, uh, several hours a day until they got their, their attitudes and their actions adjusted. Boot camp for the church is uh, a bit easier, but it involves the four things that Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says are the theme of these 40 years. What was God doing in their lives? And let me read that verse again. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, he says, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you. Uh, humility within the church is a key concept in the New Testament. In fact, the book of James, for example, says you can't even so much as come to the elders and ask the elders to pray for you without God requiring some humility, confessing your sins to the elders. Without humility, uh, we are not going to have uh, any, any uh, success or any victory in our lives. So in order to humble you, in order to test you, many tests of Christian character in the church, to know what is in your heart, so the Spirit of God takes the preaching of the Word and exposes things in your heart you didn't even realize were there, and the pastor didn't even re realize were there, but he is testing and he is exposing your heart in order to sanctify you. And then the last purpose there, he says, is... Uh, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so the church, above everything else, wants loyalty to God. Not loyalty to the pastor, loyalty to anybody else, loyalty to God and to his word. Now let's take a quick look at the theme passage in Numbers. Uh, I couldn't find one verse as the key verse, but there is a key passage, and it's the one I read earlier, Numbers 10, 34 through 36. I think this gives the heart of what this book was driving the people towards. And the cloud of the Lord, that's Jehovah, was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So that cloud guiding them symbolized the fact that God was the commander-in-chief of the armies. He provided for them. He gave them marching orders. He commanded them to submit, to be willing to follow them into battle wherever he was going. And the word Lord is all capital letters, so that always means Jehovah. That's the covenant name. So God was in covenant with his people. His people were in covenant with them. It means he committed himself to them. They were committing themselves to him. Verse 35, so it was, whenever the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So he's teaching Israel their battle cry, and it is a God-centered battle cry. It is not man-centered uh, at all, but these Israelites were man-centered to the core when they started in the boot camp, and God was going to drive that selfishness out of them and turn them into a people that were disciplined and had character and humility and vision and courage. Those things are not going to happen automatically. They are things that must be trained. 
And let me tell you something, parents. If you do not have something equivalent to a boot camp, analogous to something systematic in your training, then um, things are not going to automatically happen to your, uh, to your children in a good way. God was not going to take them into the land of Canaan until they were ready. We did not want our kids married until they were ready. And so Moses was making sure the focus of this army was correct, that it's not by might nor by power, it's by the Spirit of the Lord that uh, the armies of God were going to gain the victory. Verse 36, and when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So God pitched his tent in the midst of Israel in order to, as a gesture or a symbol of the fact, their lives were to revolve around him, not vice versa. When they joined the army, they left their life behind and they committed themselves to be soldiers of the cross. And the New Testament says exactly the same thing. Jesus said this, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 27. Another way of saying it is anyone who lacks the four qualifications in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 that we read earlier is going to be left behind. Now that may not seem nice, but we are in a dangerous spiritual battle and without this kind of humility and God-centeredness and discipline in our lives and loyalty to the Lord, we're not going to make it. We will not make it. Now, of course, like everything else in the Bible, what God commands of us, expects of us, he provides for us by his grace. And so this is a very Christ-centered uh, book. Um, Jesus is not only the general uh, of the army who guides us, and the sergeant who corrects us, and the medic who heals us. He is the shepherd who lovingly cares for us and provides for us. So what I want to do in the next few minutes here is take a look at the Christ of Numbers. This book, even though it is a tough book in terms of boot camp, is an incredibly rich book in terms of grace. It is absolutely saturated with God's grace. And I'll just give a, a, a skimming overview of uh, all of his um, uh, symbols of grace. First of all, I've already mentioned chapter 1 begins by making the glory cloud on the tabernacle in the heart of the camp with all of the troops facing that tabernacle. Now the New Testament says Jesus was Emmanuel, God dwelling with us, tabernacling among us. And I've given you some scriptures where the tabernacle was a symbol of Jesus. Now in the book of Exodus, we looked in detail at how the tabernacle foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. But in terms of boot camp, what it is saying is, hey, I'm not sending you out into the wilderness all by yourself. I'm going with you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to help you to succeed in this great venture that I'm sending you on. And by the way, Jesus underwent the boot camp himself and all of the trials that we go through, and he did so successfully so that he could lead us. Now, to save time, I'm going to skip over the next point, but Jesus is our pillar of cloud who guides us. In Numbers 9, Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes God's judgments in our place, and we're secure from the enemy and his blood, and uh, he doesn't just call us to lay down our lives. He's already patterned for us that he's laid down his life for us. In Numbers 11 and John 6, we see that Jesus is the manna that sustains us and nourishes us. In Numbers 12, we see Moses as the prophet 
who is God's close friend. He speaks face to face with God. He is God's prophetic mouthpiece. He is faithful over God's house. And I've got in my notes a whole bunch of things I can't go through because we don't have time that show that Moses was an incredible type of the Lord Jesus Christ, in effect saying, guys, I'm here with you. You don't have to do this alone. Numbers 19 points to Jesus as the red heifer sacrifice. Uh, Kathy and I just got to this part this morning in our um, family devotions as we're going through the Bible. And I tell you, this red heifer is an amazing, absolutely amazing symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just point after point after point, clearly illustrating it's all of grace. Everything he requires in this boot camp is enabled by his grace. But I can't go through it. Uh, in chapter 20, Jesus was the rock from whom the waters of the Holy Spirit flow. Now, I do want to comment on that briefly because this will come up later. <clears throat> Some people are curious, why was it that God got so upset with Moses and actually disciplined Moses? He couldn't go into the land of Canaan because of it. Why was it that when Moses struck the rock twice, God said, you're disqualified? I mean, hadn't he commanded him to strike the rock in the book of Exodus? Ah, uh, yes, but Exodus was the book of redemption. The first time that this happened, Moses was commanded by God to strike the rock one time to illustrate the fact that Jesus would be smitten only one time by the Father as a substitute for our sins, and as a result of that, the Spirit would come. Atonement would be achieved, but now we're in numbers. They're already a redeemed people. And Jesus does not need to be smitten again. He was supposed to simply speak to the rock and waters would flow just as we can pray to Jesus and daily receive the overflow of the Spirit into our lives. Moses completely messed that up by smiting the rock two times. And uh, it completely messed up the symbolism. So Jesus doesn't need to be struck over and over again as the Roman Catholic Mass blasphemously says and as Hebrews 9, 25 through 28 counters. So it is a beautiful symbol uh, that he messed up on. Okay, in Numbers 21, Jesus is symbolized by the bronze serpent. John 3, 14 to 15 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It was a, an amazing symbol of Jesus being treated as if he was sin itself, being judged on our behalf. Now, God sent snakes to bite the Israelites, and uh, they were dying off by the thousands. And at God's command, Moses made this bronze serpent, put it on a, a stick, so that all people would have to do is look at that snake. And he told them, just look at the snake, and you'll be healed. And they were instantly healed. A lot of them uh, refused uh, to do so. But 1 Corinthians 11 says there are Christians who become weak and sick and die uh, because they've broken covenant with the Lord. And all it takes is by faith to look to Jesus and we can be cleansed of our rebellion. We can be cleansed of our sin. It's a marvelous type of Jesus if you take the time to look at it. In Numbers 24, Jesus is the star out of Jacob who is destined to destroy all of his and our enemies and to rule his people. So it's a very encouraging symbol that victory is of the Lord. In Numbers 35, Jesus is the city of refuge. What would happen is if a person accidentally uh, killed somebody, um, it was not premeditated, it was just uh, an ax flying off uh, the handle or something that hit somebody in the head, they could run to this city of refuge and they would be 
secure there, safe there, until the high priest died. Well, the New Testament says we are to flee for refuge to Jesus, but unlike a human other uh, high priest, he is a high priest who lives forever, making intercession on behalf of his people. So you can see with all of these symbols of grace, which we don't have the time to really give an exposition of, for every failure that the Israelites had in this book, and there are a lot of failures in this book, Jesus was sufficient as a solution for them if and only if they looked to him in faith and availed themselves of his resources. They didn't have to go through the boot camp alone. He had promised that if they submitted to him in unconditional surrender, they would succeed. His boot camp was designed to make them succeed. He wanted them to succeed by his grace. Now, I'm going to skip over the debate on whether the book should be divided into two or to three sections. If you look at the chart there, you'll see, obviously, I side with the majority who say that there's clearly three sections dealing with three different locations and three stages in God's preparing uh, his people. I think that's clear. But what I want to do for the remainder of this sermon is take a whirlwind tour through this book to see how God's great boot camp works. In chapters 1 through 10, God's people are at Mount Sinai for 20 days. And you'll see I give the exact number of days for each of these stages there. During those 20 days, they were organized and they were resourced for the conquest of Canaan. Everything that they would have needed to get into Canaan, if it had not been for their rebellion, their insecurity, selfishness, laziness, and other character issues, they could have gotten into Canaan a whole lot more quickly. But they didn't, and God was willing to take as long as it took to get them from immaturity to maturity. In chapter 1, there is a census. Our God is a God of order and administration, organization. He highly values administration, and the logistics of organizing and moving and supplying, etc., a huge army, is, is so important. Even to a literal army, it's important. Uh, for example, uh, Apart from the logistics of organization, people wouldn't even be able to go to the bathroom without causing a great deal of grief for everybody. Three million poops a day. I mean, there's at least three million people there, right? Organization is critical, you know, in an army. So there's the census that comes first, then the army is organized in chapter 2, and all kinds of principles for armies, uh, literal armies, that you could get from this uh, passage uh, today. Now, let me just make... Uh, two applications. Uh, if you study the discussions of the uh, early Americans, they patterned America's armies after the book of Numbers. I'm not kidding. Uh, just, just study some of their discussions. But it says here in verse 2, every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. As you move down through the chapter, you will discover that uh, people, uh, a standard was like a flag that you would follow. They had their own family, you know, their clan, their tribe, and then there was the uh, nation as a whole. They didn't mix up all of the troops into one big mesh. Why? Because it was a check and balance against tyranny. Tyrants in Israel's history didn't like the fact that clans liked to do their own thing, and so they would mix people up, put them into different units so there would be no local uh, loyalty that would conflict with the tyrant's desires. 
And God set it up so that it was decentralized in terms of loyalty so that every troop would have to think through their leadership, is this a battle that is godly? Is this a battle that we want to go in? Now, can this be abused? Absolutely, yes, it can be abused, and we're going to see abuses of it in the book of Numbers. But this is a very clever check and balance called interposition that God put in place to try to avoid a tyranny. By the way, it also helped with people fighting loyally. If you're fighting with a whole bunch of your relatives and your little unit here, you're much less likely to flee if your fleeing means some of your relatives are going to die. It makes for a much fiercer loyal uh, troops. So even though we don't have the time to show it all the way through this book, the literal applications of this book to civics uh, I, I think are very uh, important. As I mentioned, America's armies were organized this way all the way up to just after the war between the states, and then they realized, we don't like uh, decentralized loyalties. We're going to change things so that there's only loyalty to one central purpose. It's, it's horrible, the changes that happened to our armies. Okay, chapters 3 through 4 describes the chaplains of the armies as well as the pastors who stayed behind. What do I mean by that? Well, all of the Levites were exempted from uh, service in the military. They could voluntarily join, and those who joined actually served as chaplains. Others would stay behind to continue to service all of the synagogues. But what this symbolizes is that God's Word must saturate even the armies of God. The chaplaincy was a very important uh, purpose in God's plan. Then in chapter 5, in the first 21 verses of chapter 6, God lays down some regulations to govern their behavior. Every boot camp has regulations. And again, I'm skipping over some of the materials here, but these regulations, if you study them, they benefited the unit, yes, but they also benefited the individual, and they benefited the wives, and they benefited the children. God's regulations were very good. But in chapter 6, verse 22, we see God's commitment to Israel via the Aaronic benediction that I pronounce upon you every week. And in chapter 7 and following, it's returning their commitment to God. And so in chapter 7, you've got all of the civic leaders symbolically saying, Lord, we are your servants. We're giving these gifts as a symbol to you. Then in the uh, next uh, chapters, um, well, in chapter 8, you've got the Levitical commitment to God. And then there's the individual commitment to God at the Passover in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, those commitment ceremonies were mutual. In all of them, God was saying, look, I am totally committed to you. And the people were saying, we're totally committed uh, to God. But it all started with God and his promised grace. In the rest of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, there was God's promise for guidance to the army. God told them that he would lead them by lifting up the cloud, and when it moved, okay, pack up your things, the cloud's moving, we're going to follow after the cloud. doesn't take a lot of thinking to follow that kind of guidance, right? But in boot camp, you're not supposed to do a lot of thinking, you know, you're supposed to just follow, learn to be disciplined, and uh, God says, you can trust me on this, Uh, this is a, a trustworthy venture. Now, it also involved human leaders as well, so there's trumpets, and they had to sound different kinds of signals, and the people had to get used to knowing what signal meant what thing, so that the armies were cohesive. And then God practiced with them. You know, he never gave instructions without practicing the instructions to see if the people would do what he was telling them to do. In our families, we need to practice obedience. Don't just assume that one correction is going to do it. 
So in chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, he practiced with them exactly what he had just said that they would do. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month and the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Boot camp was off to a good start. They were having a jolly good time. They were learning a war cry even before there was any war. This is fun. This is great. They're off on a march. But God, as a good leader, almost immediately tests how far these people are going to follow him into battle, or non-battle in this case. Boot camps are full of tests. Whether the people know they're being tested or not, they're being tested, they're being evaluated. And these people at first, they don't realize they're going into a pretty crummy area that's going to be testing their attitudes. It's really a difficult area. Uh, last verses of, sec of the first section. Numbers 10, 33 through 36. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them, and the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So far, so good. But where is this cloud leading to, it, uh, leading to? It's leading to the miserable, horrible wilderness of Paran. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, looks back on these days and said, it was the perfect testing ground for Israel. Absolutely perfect. And it was motivated by God's love for them. It says here, God led them in a desert land and in the wasteland, the howling wilderness, he encircled him, and it's referring to uh, Israel as Jacob, as a him. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept them as the apple of his eye. He never gave them more than they could handle, but they sure thought from time to time that he was giving them more than they could handle. And by the way, a good boot camp does this. It stretches people beyond what they have ever been stretched before. They think it's going past the breaking point, but it never does. The purpose is not to break them. The purpose is to challenge them. And God knew that this wilderness would bring to the surface every bad characteristic that they had. And he wanted it brought to the surface so that he could deal with it. That's what the whole second section of the book is about, dealing with these bad character issues as they arose one by one. He was determined to turn them into a disciplined, strong, lean, mean, fighting machine, okay? And he was successful. God, by the way, is always successful in everything he puts his hand to. Do not think of the book of Numbers as one failed experiment after another. By the time we get to the end of this book, you're going to say, whoa, those were all perfect. God designed them. He knew exactly what he was doing. That's what I want you to see by the time we get to the end of this, ser this uh, sermon. So, being in the tough wilderness of Paran, we're not surprised when chapter 11 begins, now when the people complained. It's tough. And that's what immature people do. They complain, right? Immediately they complain. That's their natural thing. And just as sergeants yell at people and try to get them into place, verse 1 of chapter 11 shows God's displeasure with the absolutely pathetic shape that these troops are in. What is wrong with you people, right? He's upset with them. 
And chapters 11 through 25 are devoted to turning disorder into order, turning lack of discipline into discipline, complaining into faith, cowardice into courage. It's actually an amazing series of lessons once you dig into them. And if you think of every one of these lessons as a boot camp challenge, I think you can see what God is doing. Chapter 11 deals with deliberate exposure of these people to circumstances that are going to allow their discontent and complaining spirits to manifest. They complain. Then verse 1 goes on to say, It displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and His anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. So there is a discipline, there is a removal of the kind of people that will tend to undermine the army if they are not removed. God knew who they were, and even the naming of the place after the discipline would be a constant reminder to this army of what boot camp is all about. Get with the program, and things will get easier. Get with the program, things will get easier. If you keep bucking the program, it is not going to be easy for you, okay? Notice that the discipline was on the outskirts. Joel and his family were reading through this section. They rightly guessed. Uh, they were the laggards. Yep, they were on the outskirts. They were the laggards who were kind of bucking the system here, and they were the kind of people that would be harmful. There was not a single person killed by God in the book of Numbers that deserved to live. Not a single person. Now, the next complaint comes from the mixed multitude in chapter 11, verses 4 through 10. And this time they're complaining over the chow, over the food. I bet there's a lot of complaining that initially happens in the boot camps. I'll have to ask the military guys, you know, but in the boot camps in America, can chow be a good test of whether people are qualified in God's spiritual navy? or a spiritual army, or a spiritual Navy SEALs, whatever, whatever thing is your favorite military uh, place. I think absolutely yes. You know, before I was willing to take people with me to China or to India, I absolutely refused if they were finicky over food. I, I, I realized, you know, within two or three days, they would be so fed up with the food in China or India, they would want to come home. Eating rat? Are you kidding? Um, you know, and so what I did is I took people through a whole series of tests, and chow was a very important one of those tests. Okay. This was a test of Moses' own leadership, and he responded to complaining by complaining himself. Ouch. Complaining becomes infectious, and sometimes even us leaders give in to complaining. It's not a good thing. God knew that even the leaders needed some testing. Over time, Moses gets it a whole lot more quickly than the people do, but he does two things to help the situation of complaining. In verses 16 through 30, this is chapter 11, God distributes both responsibility and authority to 70 other leaders. Even though the buck stops with Moses, there are others who can share the blame, yay, <laughs> and uh, share in the authority and the responsibility. And I'll tell you what, it is not a healthy thing to be a solo church planter. Uh, there, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul never planted churches by himself. He always had a team, right, that, that worked with him. Especially if the people that you are leading have the character uh, that Israel had. It has been such a blessing to have the deacons and the elders in this church share the leadership 
with me in this, in this church. Anyway, moving on, in verses 31 to 35, God gives them what they asked for, quail. He gives them so much they are sick of it. And was there further discipline? Yes. But you know what? God knew ahead of time exactly how they would respond. He deliberately put them into situations that would expose the problems of the heart. And as they surfaced, he clearly identified the problem and he dealt with it. God was not afraid of problems. Not afraid. And we parents should not be afraid of problems arising in our children's lives. In fact, we should hope those problems arise and that they rise early so that we can deal with them early, right? It is a blessing when character issues are exposed early so that they can be dealt with early. If you hope your kids will outgrow their problems, you are going to be a failed parent. Guaranteed. Nobody outgrows their problems on their own. There's got to be a program. There's got to be systematic discipleship out of the problems, the character issues that they are in. And by the way, there was uh, always a spiritual component that needed to be prayed against. We don't have the time to give all of the hints in this book of the demonic that was at play, but I think there was demonic written all over this story. You know, problems just arise, and they're so irrational. It's like, why on earth would these people do this? So a problem comes up here, Moses deals with it. It pops up over here, and it gets so frequent that it is incredibly discouraging to Moses. And in chapter 12... We've got Aaron and Miriam turning against him so that the very leaders who are supposed to be sharing the burden with him are part of the burden, which drives him to prayer, which is a good thing. This is a part Moses' training as well. Um, it dri drives him to prayer. Now, let's take a, a closer look at this particular problem in chapter 12. I see Miriam as the instigator here and Aaron as the passive leader who followed a critical spirit without correcting it and without realizing the disastrous implications of what he was doing. But there were two distinct character problems that appear to have driven Miriam. The first one was racism. Verse 1 says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. But then come their words, and the words don't say a thing about the Ethiopian woman. All they're talking about is Moses' abusive leadership, and he needs to share his authority, and you need to step down from what you're doing. And so what gives here? God says the problem was racism, and that doesn't come out of their mouths. Well, I think it just illustrates that sin has a way of masquerading itself as something quite different, something more spiritual. See, if they had just had a, a frontal confrontation over their racist attitudes and say, you should not have married that Ethiopian woman, all Moses would have to do, it's pretty clear cut, well, show me in the law where it's a sin to marry an Ethiopian woman. Uh, you know, without any law against it, it's not a sin. In fact, by your calling it a sin, you've engaged in legalism. You are arrogating the right to make law. You are becoming as... It had been very easy to deal with racism head on. But what happens, and this is really a demonic uh, ruse here, they didn't talk about the race issue, even though it was the underlying thing that drove them to their rebellion. They pointed to Moses' leadership, claimed that he was prideful, refusing to share authority, he should step down from office, or at least quit bossing them around. It is really, really hard to defend yourself against attacks like that. If you defend your position, 
you look prideful. You automatically look like you're prideful. But in verse 3, God says clearly, Moses was not prideful. It was a false accusation, beginning to read at verse 2. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And yet how many times do humble people get accused of pride and abusive leadership? It is a very hard accusation to defend yourself against. Now there is such a thing as abusive leadership, but Moses should not have been accused of that. In verses 4 and following, God commands them to come to the tabernacle of meeting, and they know they are in trouble. Uh, God tells them their attack on Moses' authority was a direct attack upon God its, uh, himself. You cannot undermine the chain of command without, uh, without undermining God himself. And in our egalitarian age, people take attacks on authority way too lightly. Now, if you read through the whole chapter, you'll see that Aaron's main problem was that he had allowed himself to be manipulated by his sister Miriam. He had failed to lead by failing to correct her. She complained about authority. She arrogated authority to herself, to her brother that God had not given. And the very pride that she falsely accused Moses of having, she herself had. Her feminism was coming to the forefront. And the reason that I say that the primary issue was with Miriam was because she was the only one who got disciplined here. And look at the nature of the discipline in verse 10. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. It was racism that had been driving Miriam, and since she prided herself in her lighter skin color, God decided to judge her with skin color that was ultra-white. It was horrifyingly white, leprous white, dead fish white. Okay, the discipline fit the sin. Whole section is a rebuke against kinism. Okay, and I don't have the time to get into it this morning, but you could use this passage to preach an entire sermon against kinism and even the milder form that says that it's wrong to marry. So there are some non-kinists who say it is wrong to marry a different skin color. This is a great passage uh, to turn to. Now, in all of this, I want to emphasize that God didn't avoid situations that would be stressful. I think that's our tendency. Uh, let's just avoid the stress. Let's uh, not address the problem. And in contrast, God actually planned for stressful situations to arise in order to cause those in leadership to grow and those who are under leadership to learn. Don't shield your children from difficult work, difficult stress, difficult people. Now, granted, there are some people you absolutely need to shield them against. Scripture says, for example, a divisive person. Don't even eat with them. Don't have anything to do with them. Another one that you're not to have anything to do with is a, a heretic. So divisive and heretics, yes, you avoid but stressful people, difficult people, no. Those are great people to be around. Why? Because it causes character issues to come to the surface in your kids' lives, and then you can deal with them. You say, you know, you Uncle uh, Smacho, whatever his name is, yeah, he's so difficult to get along with, but you know what? We're going to declare a war of love on him. This is going to be an exercise in which we can grow. So God never avoided the difficult situations. He actually planned them. Now, in chapters 13 through 14, God allowed 12 spies to see the land, knowing full well that 10 of them would return with a bad report. Here's the question. 
God selected those. So why was it that God did not select 12 spies that would bring such a wonderful report, everybody would get excited, get on board, and get into the land? Because God knew that they were not ready to conquer the land of Canaan. They had a lot of stuff that they needed to learn. This was not an accident. God knew they needed more boot camp, and until they came to the place, they had joyful submission to God in difficult situations, they were not ready to take on the world. The boot camp was a perfect place to learn character. Now, I've preached on the 12 spies before, so let me just be brief here. Uh, you've got 10 of those spies around you all the time on Facebook and on the news, and it doesn't have to be fake news. It could be real news that they are reporting. A lot of the news that the first 10 spies reported was good news, but it was given in such a way as to undermine the faith of people rather than lift up people's faith. And that is what the demonically motivated and oriented um, major media outlets are designed to do. They give you the news, even when it's not fake news, it's true news. It's given in a way to destroy your faith, discourage you, and to keep you from spiritually fighting. Turn off CNN. Turn off these ridiculous major medias and find Christian alternatives. There's a bunch that are out there. There's World Magazine. There's a Worldview in Five Minutes that has scriptures with each different news snippet that you can pray to the Lord. So anyway, um, Caleb and Joshua, they try to encourage them to take on the land. Hey, if God's promised us to do this, we can easily take on these giants. And uh, in chapter 14, the people are ready to stone Moses and Aaron to death. That's astonishing after all of the miracles that God had already done for them. This was a tough crew to lead, really tough. And when God offered to kill all of them and raise up a, a descendants from Moses, Moses being the selfless leader that he was, pled with God not to do so. He was willing to continue to lead them in this boot camp training. And as such, I think he stands as a marvelous type of the intercession and the loving shepherding of Jesus. And so God spares Israel but he still destroys the worst of the rebels. It was clear that these rebels, if they had the opportunity to do so, would not only kill God's representatives, they would kill God himself. They had already shown their hand on that. And so don't feel sorry for them. Not a one of them deserved to live. God knew that letting them continue would jeopardize the success of the entire nation. Some people need to be given the boot rather than given the camp. So... This was especially revealed in Korah's high-handed rebellion in chapters 15 through 16. It was such an overt attempt to overthrow God's chain of command, his uh, authority order, and replace it with egalitarianism of God's people that it would not, uh, could not be tolerated. By the way, if you want a great description of God's attitudes toward the reconstructionist anarchists that want all Reformed people to leave Reformed churches and join their Facebook, you know who I'm talking about, their Facebook church, this is the perfect passage to describe it. Even their views and discussions of authority and service parallel not only Miriam and, and Aaron, what they say, but parallel the Korah rebellion, egalitarianism, is uh, alive in the church of today. And I think the, the rebellion of Korah um, uh, describes God's attitudes toward it. Now, it's interesting that how God develops this story. Let's do a little bit of background here. He never blindsides his people. He tells them what he expects, 
When they don't do it, they receive the consequences, and then he practices with them again, and he keeps practicing until they get it right. Too many parents make up rules on the spot because they're frustrated with something that's happened, and they discipline and make a rule. Well, there was never a rule there in the first place. They blindside their kids. Their rules are not constant, and they don't practice. Now, of course, I would add that parents need to immerse their kids in God's grace and love, just like the book of Numbers is, is just saturated in grace and love, but it's a tough love, and there still needs to be rules that are set out. Now, there were two sins. Well, let, let, me, let me go back just a little bit on this. Um, how did God instruct them about his expectations? In chapter 15, God prefaces what he knows soon will happen by telling them in the first 21 verses that he expects them to keep their vows and their promises. You cannot make any progress in God's boot camp if you're a liar. It's just impossible. Any of the uh, four governments, if you're a liar, it's going to undermine God's work in your life. Lying needs to be dealt with. And there were two sins that received far more to severe discipline in our home than any other sin. One was rebellion, and the other was deceitfulness, any kind of deceitfulness, any kind of lying. These are the two that are highlighted uh, right here in uh, this uh, passage. Our kids knew that it was much better to fess up and take the discipline than to lie. Then get caught, realize they had lied, and get not only disciplined for the offense, but far, far worse discipline. We, we'd first of all say, here's the discipline that would have happened if you had confessed. Now, here's the discipline you're going to get because you, you lied about it. So um, in verses 22 through... Uh, 29, God tells them that there is forgiveness for unintentional sins. So there's still consequences and restitution, but hey, there's forgiveness for unintentional sins. But in verses 30 through 31, God warns them that outright rebellion will not be tolerated under any circumstances. Some of you parents would do well to discipline rebellion and deceitfulness wherever it arises far greater than any other sins. In any case, the Israelites knew ahead of time exactly what was going to happen. He didn't blindside them. And then God gives two symbols that would help to remind the Israelites every day and every week that they had made this covenant with God. They knew what the rules were. They had signed up for this boot camp, right? First symbol was the Sabbath. Second symbol was the wearing of tassels. And I can't get into how those were symbols, but by analogy, some of you, I think very wisely, have a if-then chart that you post on your walls. If you do this, here's the consequences, and you follow through all the time. That's great. That's the way it should be. So ahead of time, they knew what God expected, and this is what made Korah's rebellion against God's authority structure in chapter 16 so high-handed and so inexcusable. It's like they were testing the lines. Any of you have children that test the lines? I mean, you, you draw a line in the sand, metaphorically. Don't cross this line. And what do the kids do? You know, they come up close. Nothing's happening. They get just a little bit of their toe over that line and see if you're going to follow through. And when you're consistent disciplinarians, hey, all of the others watch this kid getting whacked, you know, and they realize, eh, I'm not going to cross that line at all. Consistent disciplinarians hardly ever have to discipline. That's the way it is. It's only those who who are lax that find them constantly being tested. Now, that's a long rabbit trail. Where was I? Um, okay. There was no excuse for the children of Israel who joined in Korah's rebellion in verses 41 through 50. And we don't have time to apply these chapters in detail, but 
I think there's a lot that we can learn from God's actions. Now, one thing I would clarify, you've got to carefully distinguish in your mind what was Moses' responsibility and what was God's responsibility, okay? Moses didn't do the killing. God did, right? We cannot play God with our kids. We need to understand what's our jurisdiction, what's our responsibility. But it is a chapter worth exploring. So once the discipline has happened, God goes back to instructing everyone who witnessed the rebellion. He has no problem with using the discipline of one person to instruct others who happen to have been in the same vicinity. They had rejected Aaron's leadership, so God has all of the leaders present their walking sticks to Aaron, and he puts them up overnight, and overnight God does a miracle. He makes Aaron's stick not only bud and blossom, but also have full-grown almonds on them overnight. It was a miracle. It's really cool how God supported Aaron. Then chapter 18 gives further support for the leaders. It's not a miracle. It's just boring, boring teaching. But hey, it's clear-cut teaching of what God expects of them. They need to submit to their leadership, and they need to financially support their leaders. He makes it crystal clear. Sometimes withdrawing financial support is a way, a deliberate way, of undermining leadership. They've broken their covenant, and God treats them and that as rebellion. Anarchism has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 20 brings up yet another problem that needs to be dealt with, failure to trust God's Word. And interestingly, once again, it's not just the people who fail. Moses failed. We leaders can fail. We sometimes get the discipline ourselves from the Lord, right? I described earlier how God commanded Moses to simply speak to the rock, and it would produce water. But in anger, Moses said in verse 10, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Wait a minute, must we? Moses had no ability to bring water out of the rock. Only God could do that. And then he says in verse 11, Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And God so gracious, water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. But then God says, Okay, because you disobeyed me, you're not going into the land. Anger can make leaders do foolish things and say foolish things. Okay? And so it's so absolutely imperative that we leaders learn to conquer our anger. But the faith of Moses was tested by this water incident. Israel's faith was tested again by Edom's refusal to let them pass through. So here's the question. Are they going to force the issue? Are they going to get angry, force the issue again? Well, uh, it appears that they passed the test. They patiently moved on. Israel's faith was tested with the death of Aaron in chapters 20, 20 verses 22 through 29. Will the people continue to worship even when the charismatic leader, and Aaron really was a cool guy. He was a charismatic leader. Will they continue to worship even when he's no longer their leader? In other words, is their devotion to God or is it to the leader? They appeared to pass that test. And from the outline, you can see that there were a whole series of tests in chapter 21. God knows what he is doing when he deliberately puts tests into their lives. They passed the test where God allowed the Canaanites to attack them, and God gave them victory. And I'm bringing these things up to point out to you, this was not a failed boot camp. We see many examples of Israel growing up and passing the tests that God brings. So don't be discouraged with failures in your children. When you persevere, God will give victories. It does get better, and if you look at your outline, you'll notice all the bold word, passed. Passed, 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 passed. There's a whole bunch of tests that they did pass. They're growing, they're learning. 
You know, they're moving forward. In verses 4 through 9, God tested their attitudes by having them travel in a very, very difficult terrain. They knew there were much easier routes to go, but God's going, having them go through this tough area, and so they get discouraged. They start to get uppity. They start to resist the leadership of Moses and to complain to God. And in effect, what they are saying to Moses and also to God indirectly you guys are idiots. Why don't we go over this way? You guys are idiots for taking us through this land right over here. And God brought snakes to clean out of the camp even more of the applicants to this Navy SEALs training ground. But he's merciful, so he also brought immediate relief to those who would seek uh, forgiveness. He is not a meanie. And I don't know why it is so hard for some people to humble themselves and admit that their way doesn't work even though everybody around them recognizes that their way doesn't work. They just continue in their irrational behavior, even though it's hurting them. Why do you do this? And these guys wouldn't look at that snake. They're going to do things their own way. But those who in faith said, yes, we submit, we're going to do things your way, they were immediately healed. Anyway, it's another failed test. But the failures were becoming fewer and fewer, and that's what boot camp does. I highly recommend that parents establish boot camp training where you practice the same things over and over and over again until the kids are doing the right thing with the right countenance and the right attitudes at the right speed. They learn best by practicing over and over and getting disciplined over and over. I'm not kidding. When they know that you will be consistent and always follow through, you will find that you have to discipline far less frequently, and the boot camp will actually be fun. You ask any of our kids, and they will say, yeah, the first weeks were tough. Wow, they were tough. But once they got it, they had good attitudes, they actually found the boot camp fun. Believe it or not, they found it fun. Uh, I've read some testimonies of boot camps that everybody else is complaining about, and these guys say, no, this was fun. This was great. If you have right attitude, you can go through boot camp and actually have great experiences. You're, you're getting you know, your body fit and put together. They enjoyed their boot camp. So let's whiz through the next few tests. Chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, tested their patience with yet another brutal journey, and it seems like a totally unnecessary journey. And you, you ask, wait a minute, hasn't God already put them through this place two times before? He said, yeah, but they failed, right? They failed, so he's putting them through the same paces to see if their attitudes have changed. And they had. They passed the task. Praise God, they've got it. They finally got it. And verses 16 through 20, he tests them once again with a lack of water. Remember, they had failed the, the water test two times before, but they not only passed this test with flying colors, they sang in faith to God before the water is even given to them. While they're digging the well, it's a song of faith that God will provide. Look at chapter 21, verses 16 through 18. From there they went to Beer, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, all of you sing to it. The well, the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. Now the then at the beginning of verse 17 indicates that the song happened right at the beginning of the digging, but the song acts as if it's already done. It is a statement of faith. I find this to be absolutely marvelous. You can tell a person has learned his lesson of discipline when he obeys with joy and singing not simply with grudging obedience and a scowl on his face. 
Our kids knew that whether it was in boot camp, out of boot camp, when they obeyed with a scowl on their face, they got discipline. Why? I obeyed. Yeah, but you obeyed with a scowl on your face, which reveals a bad heart. Why would we discipline them? Because we're not Pharisees. We're not content with mere outward conformity. We could see their hearts are not in this. We want to shepherd their hearts. And so boot camp after boot camp continued with our kids till the changes went beyond action and began to grip the heart. God was modeling in this book how to draw people away from their sinful hearts. Now, I'll admit, there will be some people you just have to cut loose, just never learn. But we can have the faith that most will get through the boot camp as godly people, especially since we live in the age of the new covenant, the age of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There should be greater success now than they had in the wilderness generation, but really there are no guarantees that 100% of your kids will turn out good. The only guarantees I can guarantee you is they're going to turn out bad if you don't do something with them, you know, like God, analogous to what God was doing in the boot camp. That's the only guarantee. But God's promises are so much richer that it's almost always the case that when you consistently and by faith apply His Word, you're going to have victory with all of your kids. It's almost always the case. Now, in verses 21 through 32, they pass a test of another real war. These guys are getting more and more ready to take on the conquest of Canaan. Verses 33 through 35, there's another sweet success as God has the Bashanites war against them. We don't have time to get into that, but these stories really are cool. When you study them, it shows boot camp works. It really does work, okay? Next, Satan pulls out all the stops by having Moab amass a giant army against Israel to try to intimidate Israel. When that doesn't work, and it's the Midianites who are trembling in their boots, and Satan says, oh boy, okay. So he brings out Balaam. Balaam is a demon-possessed prophet who is hired to curse Israel. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Curses are real. And if you are cursed by a demon-possessed person, you better counter that curse in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because demons love to follow up a curse and to see what they can do to mess up your lives. Don't treat curses lightly. They are real. But God had promised to protect Israel, and because they believed it, Balaam could do nothing. God kicked the demons out of Balaam. By his spirit, he prophesied blessing to Israel. He forced Balaam to bless and so by the time that this boot camp is almost done, Israel is doing fantastically. Yes, they have the occasional failure, but for the most part, they are self-disciplined. But there's one area of life they hadn't been tested with, pornographic seduction by Moab's experienced temple prostitutes. And many of the Israelites failed this test miserably. Now, maybe they were naive, maybe they hadn't been trained, who knows, but it was a sad day. They fell down sexually, and 24,000 soldiers died of a disease that Rushduni thinks was probably contracted from those women. I tend to think that he was pro he's probably right. And the ugliness of this failure was a lesson that would help this generation to fear God and to shun evil. So when you move into the last section of the book, you see an army made ready for the conquest of Canaan. They weren't perfect, and they still needed occasional testing, but they were pretty much ready. So in chapter 26, there's another census. The army had dwindled a bit despite large birth rate, but though it was a smaller army than 40 years before, it was an incredibly powerful army. 
In chapter 27, 1 through 11, God discusses the fine details of inheritance that they're about to enter by discussing women's rights in the land. It's a very important lesson, but by finally discussing inheritance, he gets his soldiers very excited because this means God is ready and he thinks we're ready. We're about to get out of boot camp. We're about to get into real war. This is what we were made for. I mean, any soldiers are going to be excited about that. And though authority lines had already been discussed and challenged and reestablished before, God does not take this for granted. He once again gives clear-cut lines of authority that they would need to follow when they get into the land and inherit it. These lines of authority cover civics in verses 12 through 13. That's chapter 27, verses 12 through 13. Church in chapters 28 through 29. And family in chapter 30. In terms of structure, one of the reasons people think there's two parts is because there are six almost exact parallel things between the first third of the book and the last third of the book. And it's a very typical Hebrew. It's not halves, but it is a parallelism between the first and the, the third. And one of those parallels is that there's a whole lot more time devoted to discussing the church than discussing civics. Why would he spend so much time in church, so little time on civics? It's because so much of, more of their time would be intersecting with the officers of the church than would be with the officers uh, of civics. It, it is an important uh, lesson. We already saw that in Ch uh, Exodus 18. In our egalitarian age, none of those lines of authority are popular. But if you destroy those lines of authority, you have destroyed your ability to take this world for Christ. God will not honor your request and your conquest. And egalitarians, I think, need to uh, realize this. Now, Numbers chapter 30 is a, a chapter on the authority structure within the family, and it is mocked by the world. Uh, you see people mocking this all the time, and my attitude is, who cares what the world thinks? They don't even know the difference between a man and a woman and 40 other so-called genders. Who cares what the world thinks? But apparently some Christians do care, and they're intimidated, and they will not follow what the Bible says in terms of authority structure. But this is backed up by the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, appeals to this chapter about women asking their husbands at home. In other words, not undermining the authority structure that is there. And so it's a very important part of success of the whole. As goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the culture. So rather than letting you, there's also how to keep your word. In fact, that's an even more important. Husbands, sons, wives, keep your word. It's absolutely, absolutely important. But there's a tendency for people to argue with pastors. I'm going to have you argue with God. I'm just going to read this for you. And I want you to take it to heart because this is God speaking directly to your heart. Numbers 30. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or if a woman makes a, a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. If indeed she takes a husband 
while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears it, then her vows shall stand, and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. Also any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall stand. Her husband has made, her, made them void and the Lord will release her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he doesn't, does make them void after he heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between the man and his wife, between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. Chapter 31. It's another fun story. It's a war against Midian. Israel has learned its lessons. It's becoming very quickly apparent. They're able to take on the world. Boot camp may not have been pleasant, but I think they were, uh, you know, they were about to graduate with great appreciation for what God has taught them. He has indeed turned them into a victorious army. In chapter 32, they're actually beginning to inherit the land east of the Jordan. But before they can call it quits, he says, no, you've got to commit yourselves to continue enabling the other tribes to inherit their land. In other words, this is not just about what benefits me. This is what benefits the body as a whole. When we teach our kids that they serve only what benefits our immediate family, we're undermining the kingdom. We need to teach our kids to be selfless beyond themselves, thinking of the interests of others ahead of their own, thinking of the body as a whole. It's a biblical concept. In chapter 33, 1 through 49, Moses reviews all of the past. Now, this was not to make them feel bad. This is for newbies to learn from everyone's mistakes. One of the most effective things, lessons that you can teach to your children is to catalog all of the mistakes and the sins that you have made, teach them what you've learned from those mistakes, and if you don't have the humility to do that, what you're consigning your kids to is to learn those mistakes all on their own. And you children, my admonition to you is to learn from the mistakes of others. You cannot live long enough to make all of the mistakes yourself. Learn from the mistakes of others. It's much more efficient. In verses 50 through 56, God calls Israel to settle for nothing less than the total conquest of all of life. We must never be satisfied till every square inch of planet Earth is placed under the feet of King Jesus. Uh, the warning of verse 40, 55 should be heeded by modern Christians who have embraced pluralism. It says, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Now, does this impact the whole debate on immigration of Muslims? 
I think it does if you carefully nuance it, but I think there's a more important spiritual lesson here, and that is that God hates compromise. God hates pluralism. He calls for a Christian America, not a pluralistic America. And as boring as the geographical boundaries in chapters 34 through 35 might be to you, it's pretty exciting to those Israelites. Hey, if you bought a piece of property, you're going to examine every square inch of the boundary. You're going to want to know everything about that property. They're excited about this, okay? And then finally, God gives instructions in chapter 36 for inheritance and how inheritance of land intersected with tribal rights and with the rights of women. He'd already given huge women's rights to inheritance, which a lot of evangelicals ignore, to inheritance in chapter 27, and both chapters speak strongly against the idea that the state owns and controls our land. And you might say, well, the state doesn't own my land. Yeah, if you're paying taxes on your land, the state owns your land, you are but a serf. You are not a free man. So we should hate taxation. We should do everything in our power to get Nebraska, to get rid, and Iowa, wherever else you live, to get rid of property taxes. It is an offense against God. But um, this chapter adds to women's rights that chapter 27 and 30 had already addressed to some degree. Now, contrary, let me just give an example. Contrary to the assertions of modern hyper-patriarchs who think women should be passive in the search for a wife for them and uh, that they don't need to be giving their opinions of whether they like the person or don't like the person. There are some people that are that way. The husband is just a purely an arranged thing. I, I want to point out the verse 6 says... Let them marry whom they think best. Obviously, their opinion is critical. Now, he goes on to say their desires for marriage must be within God's general guidelines for marriage, but they had rights. Let them marry whom they think best. 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says much the same. She is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And there are other women's rights that are addressed in this uh, chapter. So here's the bottom line. If you want a family that is strong enough to take on the world, then this chapter, chapter 27, says that you need to make sure that your wives and your daughters are free participants in that. It's not a choking environment. It's a freeing and enabling environment. Numbers is not just a book for tough Navy SEALs. It's a book that is concerned about their wives and their children as well. And it calls the wives and the kids to have some of the same characteristics. Strong families make for a strong church and a strong nation. And if you want strong families, study God's methods in the boot camp of numbers. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray that we would uh, take it seriously. We would imitate you and imitate Moses uh, within our jurisdictions and within the limits that you have given to us. And that you would give us success as by faith we do the things that are uncomfortable. Uh, even as uh, Ray uh, preached earlier, when you bring us into confrontations with uncomfortable people, Father, may we grow as a result of those interactions that we have. May we take advantage of every stressful situation. And even as John Piper uh, wrote that book, Don't Waste Your Cancer, Father, may we never waste our stressful situations, but in all of them, learn to look to you and grow in you as a result. We love you. We bless you. We love this, your people. And we pray that you would cause them to be strong in your might and uh, always look to you at the center of their lives and follow uh, your glory cloud, as it were, following the guidance of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.